follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au from Jonah 3. Um, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going on a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may let yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thank you, Adele. Well, when I was really young, my favourite fruit... Uh, were these things, apples. I used to really love apples, the taste of them and the crunch of them and all that sort of stuff. And um, I used to see the stories of Adam and Eve and how, you know, in the Garden of Eden, they took the forbidden fruit and it was always a picture of an apple. And I always thought, used to think that makes sense because they taste really good. But, but as I've grown older, my um, taste buds have changed and uh, they're no longer my favourite fruit. Uh, my favourite fruit are these little babies. They're called passion fruits. And I'm now theologically convinced that... Um, on the, uh, garden, in the Garden of Eden, this was what was hanging on the trees. Because uh, if you're going to give up everything, you're not going to give it up for something like an apple, but perhaps for a passion fruit. Um, and so these are now my favourite fruit. And if you're listening on the podcast, I am joking. So before you stone me, I am joking. But I'm not joking about my love of passion fruits. I really do uh, love the taste of them. Uh, they're very, very nice. But the thing about passion fruits is they're kind of ugly on the outside. This is not a bad looking one. It's pretty smooth. But usually they're kind of wrinkly on the outside and they look a bit decrepit and you sort of think, well, what could possibly be good inside these things? They look really ugly. But with a passion fruit, I've bought a little uh, chopping board here and a knife and I'm going to cut it open and show you what a passion fruit actually looks like on the inside because while they're ugly on the outside, they're not really ugly on the inside. So as I cut it open, I'm not cutting it very straight, but that's okay. So I cut it open and now you look inside... The inside the passion fruit, and what you see is something beautiful. In fact, it doesn't just look beautiful, it tastes beautiful. So I'm going to uh, have it right now. Um, just talk amongst yourselves. Mmm. Mmm, I'm making a mess here, but this is uh, absolutely beautiful. It's sweet. It's got, I feel like Jamie Oliver now, you know. It's kind of sweet, and it's got a little bit of a crunch in there, and just love it. It's beautiful, and anyway, I'm... I started, I've got to finish now, so just... Just talk amongst yourselves, like I said. I've never eaten it this fast before. I usually enjoy it, but it's really good. Mmm, sweet. Bit of crunch. 
So I didn't bring one for everyone. <laughs> Probably thinking, why did I do this? Well, I didn't have breakfast. So. Now you know, but passion fruits are absolutely beautiful. And they're beautiful. They're ugly on the outside, but when you get in the inside, they've got this sweet tang about them, a bit of crunch, and they are beautiful on the inside. And the reason I'm really saying that is the book of Jonah is a little bit like a passion fruit. It's kind of ugly on the outside layers. Uh, chapter 1, we read a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, and it was pretty ugly, wasn't it? Jonah was called by God to follow God, and uh, he disobeyed, he turned, he went away from Nineveh to Tarshish in the opposite direction, and at the end of chapter 1, he got swallowed by a whale. I mean, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? It's not a, not a good day's work. Chapter 4 is also very ugly. We're going to talk about that next week, and so a bit of a spoiler alert, but it's ugly. It's really ugly, um, and we see some horrible stuff there. But in the middle of Jonah, uh, in the middle we find ourselves a sweet spot. Chapters 2 and 3 are a sweet spot in the life of Jonah, and we see some stuff in his life that is worth taking on board for ourselves. Last week, Ray did a great job preaching through chapter 2, and we saw this sweet spot commence. Uh, Jonah prayed, he repented, he obeyed, he turned to God, he took responsibility for his actions. He took the blame on himself and he said, it's my fault. And in verse 9, he declared this amazing statement where he says, salvation comes from the Lord. And that's the name of our series, Salvation, a major theme in the book. But there were a couple of things last week that stood out for me um, when Ray was speaking. I thought they were worth uh, reminding you of again today because they are you know, kind of timely in light of what's happened in the last 24 hours. And the first thing that, that really stood out as Ray was preaching last week is that prayer is really important. And prayer is not something that's meant to be just reactive. It's actually meant to be proactive. As we looked at chapter 2 and chap- chapter 1, sorry, we saw in the life of Jonah that there was no evidence of a prayer life whatsoever. Uh, when God called him to go to Nineveh, he didn't pray about it for one second. There's no sign in the account that even when he was on the boat and the storm was happening because of his disobedience and the sailor came to him who wasn't a God follower and he said, get up and pray to your God. Even then in the account, he doesn't bother to pray. There's no sign whatsoever of any prayer life in chapter 1. But then we get to, uh, and we hear in chapter 2, we see for the first time that he actually prays. And it's not until he's in the middle of the valley of a whale that he prays for the first time. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. Chapter 2, From the depths of the grave, I called for help. Verse 7, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And the challenge and the question for us is, how often do we do the same thing? We wait until we're going through some sort of crisis before we bother to pray. Yesterday, after the events in Paris, we saw on social media a hashtag that said, pray for Paris. And it's a wonderful thing to do, to respond to a tragedy by praying. But I thought to myself, I wonder how many people had that hashtag and how many of those never actually ever pray unless there's some sort of crisis and it becomes trendy on social media. You see, prayer's not just reactive, it must be proactive. But so often we wait till we're distressed. We wait till life is sort of struggling. We wait till we feel like we're sinking and then we remember the Lord and we cry out for help, a bit like it's a life raft. But this morning I want to remind you that prayer is a weapon, not just a life raft. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Every week, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, we gather in that small room at the back of the church and we pray. 
a small group of faithful people pray. And, and all of you are welcome to come. It'd be great to fill that room. But we get together and pray because we want to be proactive in prayer. We want to worship God. We want to lift up His name. We want to pray for this community. We want to pray for the service that God would do something because we believe that prayer is powerful and effective. And so as a community, let's never be reactive in prayer. Let's be proactive and be praying every day that God would do something in and through our lives. Second thing I noticed in Jonah chapter 2 that, that Ray spoke about last week is that Jonah got swallowed by a whale. Actually happened at the, uh, the end of chapter 1, but we see the results in chapter 2. Did anyone else notice that in the text? It's kind of, you can't miss it. You got swallowed by a whale. It doesn't happen that often. And it's a pretty bad day when you get swallowed by a whale. And I'm sure that when Jonah was in that fish with all the fish guts and all the smells, wet and miserable, dark and lonely, he probably thought to himself, man, life can't get any worse than this. I mean, I've hit rock bottom. I'm in the belly of a whale. Life can't get any worse. But as I thought about that this week, I was reminded of the reality that being swallowed by that whale is actually what saved his life. He would have drowned in that ocean. And yet, by God's grace, he was swallowed by the whale. And as he came out of that whale, a new season um, of opportunity opened up in his life. And so when difficult things happen, we need to pray and trust God. That even through things like yesterday, some positives will come as God works through the heartbreak and through a tragic situation. You know, I know there are people in this room right now that are going through really difficult times. You're struggling. Maybe it's been for a week. Maybe it's been for a month. Maybe it's been for years. And you are struggling every day. And perhaps you've even thought to yourself, life can't get any worse than this. And maybe you've cried out to God and said, God, where are you? I keep praying, God, where are you? Well, it's in these times that we need to hold on to the promises of God because He is faithful to His Word. The promises that He turns all things together for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. He's turning all things together for good. And the Bible says, rejoice in your sufferings because sufferings produce stuff. They produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And the Bible says, hope does not disappoint. And so as God's people, we've got to look back, remind ourselves that God is faithful. We need to look forward and know that God is able. And remember and remind ourselves that we're only the people we are now because of what we persevered through in the past. And we'll only ever be the people God wants us to be in the future as we rejoice in what we're going through in the present. And so can I encourage you to turn to God in difficult times? I think all of this is something that Jonah could relate to. And at the start of chapter 3, he has been literally vomited up onto the beach. He's had a resurrection of sorts. He's been saved and he's been given a second chance to live out the mission that God called him to in the first place. And so in chapter 3 today, the sweet spot continues. We're in the middle of the passion fruit still. And we will see that it's a direct contrast to what we read in chapter 1. If you remember back to chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In verse 3 of the same chapter, it said, Jonah ran from the Lord. He went off to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh. But in chapter 3, we see the exact opposite. Verse 1, once again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. But in verse 3, this time, instead of running away, he runs towards God. He obeys the word of the Lord and he goes to Nineveh. Verse 3 tells us that Nineveh is a really important city. Around about 120,000 people in that city. In week 1, we heard that Nineveh was built by a guy called Nimrod. 
whose name meant to rebel. Remember, I encourage you not to call your kids Nimrod, um, ever. Um, but Nimrod built this city, and his name meant to rebel, and that's exactly what we're seeing in the city. It's a, a city of rebellion. It's a city of brokenness. If we go back to Genesis chapter 10, we read a little bit more about Nimrod and about this place, Nineveh. Let me read to you from Genesis 10, chapter, uh, verse 8. It says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, and Kelnar in the Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kalar, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalar, which is the great city. And so Nineveh was kind of like a four-part city. It was massive. Uh, it took about three days to walk through it. It was influential. And as we remember how big and how grand and how great the city is, we're reminded of the gravity of the task that Jonah's been given. It's a huge job to go to Nineveh. You know, mission can be daunting. And here's one man being sent to a city that's evil and violent. He must have thought to himself, what on earth can I do here? And I think for us, mission can be daunting as well. We have questions like, where do I start? What do I say? How do I live a missional life? These are the things I think and imagine that we'll be wrestling with for the rest of our lives. But what I'm learning as I go along is that mission is very much about the little steps every day. Sometimes we build it up to be this massive thing and I've got to get on a boat somewhere and go and do something radical. But being missional is actually just living in the big moments and the little moments every single day. As we connect with our neighbours, as we are in our workplaces, as we talk to our family and friends, as we bless people with what God's given us, we start to live these kind of missional lives. And what we need to know is that as we actually go out on mission, we don't go alone. God has told us to go, but he's also promised that he'll be with us to the very end of the age. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to all of creation. And so when we go on mission, God gives us everything that we need. And so here's Jonah going into Nineveh, this huge city with nothing but God's word and God's presence. That's all we needed. And it's all we need. Verse 4 says, the first day he proclaimed the message that God had given him. Jonah began, the, began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now in week one we talked about the fact that he had a message of um, warning to these people, but he also had a message more powerfully of salvation, that you can be saved. But if you don't repent and if you don't turn to the Lord, in 40 days Nineveh is going to be wiped out. God is going to wipe this place out completely. You see, God takes sin seriously. I think a lot of people find it really difficult to kind of reconcile the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, at times it's, it's kind of brutal, isn't it? God just wipes people out. Nations are gone. They rebel and God just says, bang, you're gone. You didn't, didn't repent, you're wiped out. And it's really kind of brutal and quite violent at times. And, and sometimes we think, man, is, is God like that? And then we, we turn the page into the New Testament and that same God's hanging on a cross dying in our place, his mercy and his grace flooding into our hearts. If you're a Christian here today, you've been transformed by God and what he did through his son on the cross. And we look at him and we go, wow, no greater love than this, than to lay down your life for your friends. And so the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, how does this all work? This morning I want to tell you that it's the same God and he still hates sin. 
The New Testament tells us his mercy triumphs over his judgment. I love that about God. His mercy triumphs over his judgment. And though God still takes sin seriously, we're in an age of grace where Jesus stands at the cross with his arms open wide and he says, I love you so much that even though you've done the wrong thing, I die in your place. I take your sin upon myself. I absorb the punishment you deserve to take and I absorb it on the cross for you because I love you. And he says, all you need to do is receive that free gift of salvation. To say, yes, thank you for what you did for me. I receive you into my life as my Lord and Savior. And if you just simply receive that gift, you can know that you're forgiven. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you have the hope of eternal life. And most of all, that you're in relationship with the God who created you. It's a wonderful message, the gospel. And so my question this morning is this, have you received that gift? Have you received this gift of salvation? Because if you have, one day when you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your master's happiness. But if you haven't, you're going to have to pay the price for your sin yourself. And that will be eternal separation from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things well done in the body, whether good or bad. And so how will we respond to this message of repentance and salvation? Well, I think we can look at the Ninevites and we can see a group of people that responded almost perfectly. An instant response. They responded with what we know as repentance. Let me read to you verse 5. It says, The Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say they said, Oh, yeah, whatever. We don't believe you. They didn't reject Him. No, it said they believed Him. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, the leader of this city, it says he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. This is the king sitting in the dust with sackcloth on. Now, in the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes was something that you did as a sign of uh, mourning or a sign more... Uh, commonly of repentance. And so they put on this sackcloth stuff, which is this kind of uncomfortable, hessian kind of material. It was really horrible to wear. And they would sit down in the dust and they'd heap ashes on their head. And it was a sign that they felt uh, hopeless. They felt like they needed to repent. They were mourning at the state of what was going on in their nation. And this is what the king's doing. And this is what he's commanding everyone else to do. In verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat. Do not let them drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. You know, repentance is not something we talk about a lot in church these days. You know, when we talk about, we're going to do a series on repentance. People don't go, woohoo, can't wait to hear about repentance. But it's such a critical thing to talk about. And I actually think it's one of the key indicators that we're actually saved. If we are people that are repentant, it's a, it's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, that we are being changed from the inside out. You see, the Holy Spirit, I believe the Bible teaches clearly that we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. And His role is to point us to Jesus. But His role is also to convict our hearts of sin. Now, He doesn't do that to heap guilt on us. A lot of people, they have this view of God, don't they? 
that God's just, he's angry all the time, he's just angry because we're doing the wrong thing, and he's just guilty, 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 guilty. Well, God's not like that. The Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the power of sin and death. It's wonderful. And so he doesn't convict us of sin to, to heap guilt on us, but to point us back to Jesus and remind us that in him we're new. We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ. And the Holy Spirit keeps pointing us back to him, saying he's your only hope. He's the only means of salvation. He's your only means of joy. He's the only means of abundant life. And as we're reminded of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit points us back to him, and we see afresh every day how glorious he is, as we're reminded of the power of the gospel every day, that we are saved because of him, man, we, we fall more and more in love with him. And when you're in love with someone, you want to please them. You, want to do, you don't want to do things that displease them. We want to do things that please them. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do things that please Jesus and, and in the process become more and more like him. That's why our vision at Follow Baptist Church is Jesus. We've got to keep looking back to him. He's all we need. He's our only hope. You know what? Repentance is never just empty words. It's not like, yeah, sorry, God, and then we just keep doing what we were doing. It's always something that changes what we're doing. I wonder if, if we just said sorry and kept what, doing what we were doing, if we were doing something wrong. I wonder how that would work in relationships in real life. I wonder if I try that out on my wife this afternoon. I get home, Kim's cooked a beautiful lamb roast with potatoes. I hope this is prophetic. I don't think it is. Um, but, but just say she's cooked a beautiful lamb roast. I get home, smells amazing. I walk in just as I walk in, the plate goes down the table. I'm dreaming, aren't I? This isn't really happening. Uh, but I walk in there, the, the, the plate's there, it's waiting for me. Kim says, welcome home, darling. Pulls out the chair. I sit down and I eat this beautiful lamb roast. And at the end of the lamb roast, I, I just get up, I leave the table, I leave my plate there and uh, I head to the couch because the cricket's on. And I switch on the cricket and, and Kim goes and she cleans up the table and she takes it to the kitchen and she starts to wash the dishes. And she gets about two minutes in and she says, Luke, I'm sick of this. You know, I, I cook meals, I slave over the stove and the oven and I do all this stuff for you. And then, and then at the end of it, instead of helping me clean up, you just sit on the couch and watch the cricket. I'm really tired of it. Now, I wonder how it would work if I said, oh, sorry, darling. And I turn up the volume and I say, can you get me a drink? Um, I wonder how she'd feel in that moment. More to the point, I wonder how I'd feel. I think I'd have a sore head. She'd come up and go, whack. No, she wouldn't do that. She's a very godly, uh, gracious woman, and Australia says no to violence of any kind, so she wouldn't do that. But if she did, I'd probably deserve a clip across the ears. You see, repentance is more than just empty words. It's not about just saying sorry. It's actually ceasing to do the things that we're doing, the things that cause us to walk away from God and forsake Him. It's actually stopping those things turning around and now forsaking the very things we were doing and, and actually start walking back and pursuing God. That's what repentance is. It's not empty words, it's words and actions. I wonder how we respond when the Holy Spirit convicts us. When there's things in our lives that need to change, do we respond with apathy? Ah, oh, yeah, I'll get to it later. Do we respond with shifting the blame? You know, it's not my fault. Do we respond by making excuses? Well, if they didn't say that in the first place, I wouldn't have got angry. What do we do when the Holy Spirit works in our heart? Have you ever heard a sermon and thought, man, I wish that person was here today? Gee, oh, you know, you might give your husband or wife a sneaky nudge and say, I hope you're listening. I do that with my kids. You're listening to what the preacher's saying. You know, is that what we do? 
when the Holy Spirit's convicting our hearts? You know how I think we often respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? We respond by holding up a, a mirror. But we don't actually turn the mirror at us. We actually turn the mirror at others. So the Holy Spirit's working in our heart. He's convicting me on things in my life and I go, you know what? I'm not as bad as Ray. I mean, if I was as bad as Ray, it would be an issue. But I mean, while Ray's around, I'm not too bad. I'm going all right. I mean, imagine if I was like Paul. Paul and Jen, I mean, have a look. You guys, shocking. Shocking. You need some work. You know, you need some real work. Gee, it's getting worse as we go down the aisle, isn't it? Almost a Bruce church. Yeah, look, Bruce is hiding. Yeah, yeah, Bruce, there's some things you need to learn today. Holy Spirit speaking to you, mate. Yeah, about time. Yeah. Ryan and Josh, well, I'll give up on you guys. Dave, you know, like, this is what we do. And the Holy Spirit, yeah, look at you all looking away, aren't you? You want to make eye contact? It's going to pick me out next. Abel, I see you, mate. I see you back there. Rachel's good, but you need some work. Is that how we respond when the Holy Spirit convicts us? Do we hold up the mirror, Craig? Didn't miss you, mate. There you are. Have a good look. You know, that's what we often do, isn't it? The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and we know there's things going on, but it's so much easier to point at other people. So much easier to divert that conviction. But what we need to do, we need to actually turn the mirror around. Man, you're good looking. No, you don't mean to say that. Um, you turn it around, you, you might get a fright at what you see. Ah! There's a log. There's a log in my eye. I was worried about the speck in Jared's. Actually, there's a log there too, but I was worried about his log. And I'm not worried about my own. But when we turn the mirror on ourselves, we realize that there's things in our lives that we need to own. That the Holy Spirit is convicting us and challenging us. And when you look in the mirror and say, God, I'm sorry. There's things I need to take responsibility for. Lord, I know there's things you want me to change. And Lord, would you help me? Lord, I'm sorry. I repent for the things I've done. Please forgive me. And by your Holy Spirit, help me to turn from the things I'm doing and pursue you with my life. So what are the things in your life today that maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about? Perhaps it's sexual sin. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's envy or apathy. Maybe there's people you need to forgive. Maybe there's people you need to ask forgiveness from. Maybe there's things in your life that just become more important than they should. And you've pushed God off the throne of your life. Today, what's the Holy Spirit speaking to you about? What's he speaking to me about? As we turn the mirror on ourselves and take responsibility. In this chapter, the king of Nineveh takes responsibility. He calls a fast. The fasting was called not just for all the humans, but also for all the domestic creatures. They're all facing destruction within 40 days. And so all of them don't have any food. All of them are in sackcloth. This is pretty rare in the Old Testament. Animals aren't usually create, uh, included in the, in the sackcloth and ashes and the, the fasting. But it just shows that the king of Nineveh is serious. In verse 8, he says, let everyone call urgently on God. And then here's the key to repentance, true repentance. He says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Not just words, but it's actions. I love the way this chapter finishes, verse 9. The king of Nineveh says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You know what? I love the mercy and compassion of our God. I mean, day after day, we make mistakes. Day after day, we make choices to walk away from him. But day after day, we feel the life-changing reality of life-changing grace as we come back to him. 
And in verse 10, it reminds us that God takes no pleasure at all in judgment. His desire is that none should perish. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. In the next chapter, chapter 4, Jonah quotes Psalm 103 verse 8, which says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. That's our God. You know, church, it's so important that we have a proper view of who God is. You know, in the light of very difficult circumstances, tragic circumstances, people often have a view of God that this is God's fault. All this stuff's happening. But we need to have a proper view of who God is. He's not the nasty man in the sky with the big stick. He's not looking to belt us every time we do the wrong thing. He's not the one causing evil in the world. You know what we need for that? We need this mirror back out again. And we need to look into it. And we'll know where evil in the world comes from. It comes from us, humans. God is not cruel. He's not vindictive. He's compassionate. And he's kind. And he's working all things together for those who love him. Even what seems like the worst times, in the belly of a whale, God is still good and his plans and his ways are higher than we can ever imagine. Let me finish by reading a story that I read during the week about a man. It's from September 11, 2001. And he rang up two years later a radio station in Norfolk, Norfolk. And these are his words. His name's Robert Matthews. He says, A few weeks before September 11, my wife and I found out we were going to have our first child. She planned a trip out to California to visit her sister. On our way to the airport, we prayed that God would grant my wife a safe trip and be with her. It's a good prayer to pray. Shortly after I said amen, we both heard a loud pop and the car shook violently. We'd blown out a tyre. I replaced the tyre as quickly as I possibly could, but we still missed her flight. Both very upset, we drove home. As we got home, I received a call from my father, who was a retired fireman from the New York Fire Department. He asked me what my wife's flight number was, but I explained that we missed the flight. My father then informed me that her flight was the one that crashed into the Southern Tower. I was too shocked to speak. My father also had some more news for me. He was going to help. He said, this is not something I can sit by for. I have to do something. I was concerned for his safety, of course, but more because he'd never given his life to Christ. After a brief debate, I knew his mind was made up. Before he got off the phone, he said to me, take good care of my grandchild. Those were the last words I ever heard my father speak. He died while helping in the rescue effort. My joy that my prayer for safety for my wife had been answered quickly became anger. I was angry at God. I was angry at my father. And I was angry at myself. I'd gone for nearly two years blaming God for taking my father away. My son would never know his grandfather. My father had never accepted Christ and I never got to say goodbye. But then everything changed. Something happened. About two months ago, I was sitting at home with my wife and my son. When there was a knock on the door, I looked at my wife, but I could tell she wasn't expecting anyone. And so I went and I opened the door to a couple with a small child. The man looked at me and he asked if my father's name was Jake Matthews. I told him it was. He quickly grabbed my hand and he said, I never got the chance to meet your father. But it's an honour to meet his son. He explained to me that his wife had worked in the World Trade Centre and had been caught inside after the attack. She was pregnant and she'd been caught under some debris. He then explained that my father had been the one to find his wife 
and to free her. My eyes welled up with tears as I thought of my father giving his life for people like this. He then said, there's something else you need to know. His wife then told me. As my father worked to free her, she talked to him and she led him to Christ. I began sobbing at the news. Now I know that when I get to heaven, my father will be standing beside Jesus to welcome me and that this family would be able to thank him themselves. When their baby was born, they named him Jacob Matthew in honour of the man who gave his life so that a mother and baby could live. Now we should never assume that God's not interested. We should never assume that he's not working in the circumstances. Our God is gracious and kind. He's loving and compassionate. He cares. And that's what the whole story of Jonah is all about. He called one man to go to a city of 120,000 people that he cared for, to carry a message of salvation because he cared. We've been placed in officer in this region. 30,000 people moving here in the next 10 years. Five families moving into this region every day. We've been placed here because God cares. He cares about the people in this region that don't know him. And he's placed us here to carry a message of salvation because he cares for this place. As we come to him in prayer, as we come to him with repentant hearts, we won't find a dictator God. We won't find a cruel or harsh God. We will find a God who is loved. And we'll be reminded that he has called us to follow in his footsteps, to lay our lives down for people in our community and to love them the way that he does. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you that you're an incredible God. We thank you that you are a loving God. And Lord, today we come before you in repentance, the things in our lives that need to change, the times that we haven't been prayerful, the times that we've been proud and arrogant rather than humble, humbly laying our lives before you. Lord, we say we're sorry for that. We're sorry for the times that we've had a wrong impression of who you are, where we have doubted your goodness, where we have doubted your grace, where we have doubted the fact that you're compassionate and merciful. Lord, I pray today that you would remind our hearts, even in the midst of the circumstances this week, that you are good and you are good all the time. Lord, I pray that we would love you, that as we have that accurate view of you as a father, Lord, that we would actually live our lives from that, that we would take great comfort, great security in knowing that, that whether we've had a good earthly father or a bad one, that you're the ultimate father that never lets us down. You never leave us, you never forsake us, but you love us unconditionally. And Lord, that gives us great security and great hope. Lord, I just really pray for everyone here today. I pray for those that already know you, Lord. I pray today that they would leave reminded of your incredible compassion towards us. But Lord, I pray for those here today that don't know you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to consider him today. And as God speaks to your heart, I believe the Holy Spirit will be working in your life today. I pray that, that you would come to that point of understanding who he is, that he died for you, that he died for me, that he took our sins upon himself and in him we can be set free from that sin, that guilt, that shame. We can be given new life to live for him, for his glory now and forever. It's an incredible message. If you're here today, I just want you to stop and pause for a second and consider that. And if you feel that God's speaking to you today, you may not know um, much about Christianity or about Jesus himself, 
But I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. So if God's speaking to you today, at the end of the service, I'd love you to come and grab me and I'd love to chat to you more about this incredible grace and this incredible God who loves us. We thank you, Lord, for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.